Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Happy to Meet Cute. This is Fallon Ballard here with my, I was going to say intrepid again. Why can I not ever think of adjectives? <laughs> we'll go with intrepid. She is intrepid. If I could define that word, can I? No, no, I can't, but it's all good. Here with my intrepid co-host, Courtney Gay. We are here for a very special episode today, um, so I'm freaking out a little bit, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Um, we have a very special guest who... Uh, could not even put into words how this person has absolutely saved my brain on multiple occasions. Um, I send her unhinged emails <laughs> on a regular basis, and she always responds. To, well, A, she responds to them, first of all, but B, also in a way that just always soothes my soul. Um, so I'm so, so happy today we're going to be talking to my editor, the fabulous Gabby Mongelli. I'm going to give you some info on her because she is amazing. She joined Putnam, my publisher, in 2018. Her focus is on literary and upmarket commercial fiction. I will now be referring to my books as upmarket commercial fiction. Uh, <laughs> they're not, Love but that. we'll call them that. As well as select narrative nonfiction, history, and pop culture. She is interested in stories with a clear driving engine and a smart, unique take on the world, whether that be a page-turning plot, a compelling voice, or a strong sense of place. She is the editor for New York Times best-selling authors, Eleanor Brown, Sharon K. Penman, and Stuart Woods, as well as many others. So, so thrilled to welcome you to the studio, Gabby. Thank you so much for being here. We are so excited. Thank you for having me. I People listening could not see like the blush on my face and how red I'm getting. And like, <laughs> Fallon, I will always love your emails that I will never call deranged. They're wonderful. <laughs> they make me laugh. I Good. they bring me so much joy in in the flurry of my inbox. I see your name and I'm like, yes, I can't wait. <laughs> Okay, good. That makes me happy to hear that because I definitely sent you one like last week. I was like, I'm sorry in this You were like, well, I didn't know if I should text you or I'm going to put this in an email. And I'm like, I'm glad you did so I can save this forever. <laughs> well, thank you. You have talked me off many a ledge uh, and I appreciate you greatly. <laughs> and I, you, truly. <laughs> yeah. And I speak for every writer everywhere that we love editors. Like, <laughs> we just adore you and you're so happy. You're, like, I'm trying to contain uh, the fanning, but um, <laughs> we're just so happy you're here and so excited to hear about um, the process and everything we're going to talk about. And so, sort of to start our conversation journey. <laughs> Um, let's hear about just my type. And Fallon, if you want to maybe talk about the inspiration behind that, and then we can go into your journey with Gabby. Yeah. So um, the inspiration for this one is actually, I feel like a great demonstrator of my personality. Uh, I was watching <laughs> the final installment of the To All the Boys uh, movies. On Netflix, which of course were amazing. Great movies. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm watching this as a woman 
in her late 30s. And when they go off to their colleges, you know, he's going to Stanford, she's going to NYU. I'm like, oh, that's so adorable. Like, you're gonna break up in three weeks. Like, this <laughs> is not a relationship that's, that's going way, to happen. I like shouted at the screen when that happened. Yes. I was like, you sweet, sweet summer children. <laughs> like, I just... I'm so happy you're happy. However, <laughs> Don't perspective on that. It was just like, oh, oh, babies. Um, (laughs) So that was sort of the first seed of like, okay, so what about these two kids that go away to these colleges? They really do love each other. But obviously, that's like sort of a natural split. So what happens if they come back together, you know, in this sort of high stakes quote unquote, um, you know, situation when they're much later on in life. Uh, And that's sort of how it was born. And then it went through many, many, many stages (laughs) after that. As as they naturally do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There are many times when I thought this book would not ever get finished, but it did. I have love this book from stage one and I'm sure we'll get into the deeper conversation about like you know how second books in particular edited but Fallon I was looking through our notes and remember when way way back when this was just a kernel of an idea and essentially just for listeners who may not know just my tape it falls to journalists writing in LA there's a fantastic kind of competitive plot line the how to lose a guy in 10 days fangirl in me was just instantly like Mm -hmm. yes it is time I can't wait but in the early days I don't know if you recall Seth was a baseball player oh that's right (laughs) wow okay he got like a commentator job like that's so just for context for everyone like how much this process like shifts and changed and that was like the little I know I hinted it's like I have I have a memory I don't know if you're gonna yeah I mean okay so I definitely remember that but that is definitely not something that I ever would have even thought to like connect to where this book is right now but yeah because it was a lot more um, I think sort of tied into that original inspiration of like, he's the athlete and she was kind of like, you know, the nerdy girl. Um, and that definitely obviously shifted quite a bit over time. Yeah, I totally I had blocked that out. <laughs> That's like one of my favorite little fun facts, because in my mind, I'm just like, ooh, like Seth Carson's alternate reality of like being a, like a minor or even like a pro baseball. I don't even know how yeah. far we got into that idea. But I've always just like secretly in the back of my mind, like we'll read this book being like, ah, and his secret love of baseball that will never, ever show up on the page. (laughs) Well, I do think there's a line where she referenced where Lana says that he was an athlete in high school, which is how we justify the fact that he's 30 and still is like (laughs) totally ripped because, you know, that has to happen. Totally how it still works. (laughs) It just stays with you for 12 years, forever. <laughs> the abs, they never go away. Uh. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Okay, well, I might have to go back and like look at that first draft. <laughs> I don't think that's I want awesome. to though. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my gosh. Uh. 
a minute. <laughs> this is incredible. Let me just throw us for a loop here. I just was like, no. oh, wow. Like, it just shows, though. I I love this detail because the book, in my mind, like, as a finished form, it's like, oh, this is always what it was going to be. Like, it couldn't be any other way. The exact, like, order of the plot, all of these characters, like, this is who they were meant to be. But knowing way back when, in a great way that it's like, oh, but they can shift and change and you can turn them into whatever you want to turn them into. And like the essence of the story and the heart and the relationship was like there from email, not even like page or outline, like email one. And mm-hmm. it's just so funny that it's like you can change the outfits. I think of it as like, you know, in Clueless, Cher's digital closet where she yes. just like picks the outfits <laughs> and it flies. And it's like, sometimes though, creating a plot and creating a story is like that where you're like, ooh, the yellow plaid or the blue plaid, like what best suits the story's purposes. But like, it's still the person and the outfit. And you can, this is, I'm really going off tangent here mm. with a clueless reference, but no, you're not. This we I thought was that. just like a great example of, oh yeah, like you can think of a story and it can look really different and then you find your way to what it's meant to be, but it still informs. Like Seth still is an athlete who has these great abs, even though he's yeah. a journalist. And I mean, <laughs> I love like it. bums no around in his car and, and doesn't know how to like water a plant. But <laughs> his athletic skill from high school still stands. <laughs> the important things still remain. <laughs> I feel like that's a good segue to go into, like, talking about book two. Are we ready? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Are we ready? Oh. Um, okay. Well, before we get too into that, because I have so many thoughts and tangents, can you, okay. Gabby, just for the listeners who maybe aren't as enmeshed in the publishing world, just give us sort of like a brief overview of like what an editor does. I mean, obviously we know you edit books, um, but that's like <laughs> a tiny sliver of what your actual job is. So can you tell us some of the magic that you work behind the scenes? Yes. So basically, long story short, I am an editor here at Putnam, which is, you know, one of the houses within, you know, the big five publish- publishers. And my role is primarily as in acquisition, developmental, and kind of post-production editorial role. So it kind of encompasses the whole wide range of the entire like book from submission to beyond publication process. Um, most of my day is responding to emails. Uh, I love emails. My Outlook inbox is a beautiful place with a lot of little color-coded flags and whatnot. But all the tasks that kind of anything that touches the book publication process, I'm often involved in in some way. So essentially, my day can look like going to meetings, talking to colleagues about projects that are in development, um, reading submissions. I, to kind of go through the process of like a book's life, I will receive a submission from a literary agent. If I fall in love with it, if my team falls in love with it, I will, you know, go through the various processes of acquiring that submission, which can look very different for every single book. So I won't bore people by, by getting into all the details. Um, and then once a book's acquired, I work with that author often one-on-one in the beginning for developmental editing. So I'm sure people probably know like the editing process, it's revisions, it's working on character, it's working on plot. And then once we kind of get to a finished point, 
which I always like to say a book is actually never finished in which no artistic creative endeavor is ever actually finished. But when we decide that we are done, <laughs> whether for a variety of reasons, um, but more often because the story you want to tell has been told and, and the writer feels comfortable, I feel enthusiastic about the project, we then start to bring it into the wider house at large. So a book gets sent into production. And that's where my phenomenal, phenomenal production colleagues who never get enough of a shout out, managing editorial, production editorial, copy editors, interior designers, they are the lifeblood that keeps us going and make the words in a Word document into an actual book. They kind of take over the reins there, but I help shepherd. So it's you know reviewing copy edits with an author, looking at queries, looking at layouts, designs. Then as we get closer to pub, writing alongside marketing publicity as they craft their campaigns. I pitch books to our internal sales force. Um, I hunt down blurbs, everyone's favorite thing, um, from fellow <laughs> writers, um, bookseller outreach, librarian outreach, essentially anything that is in support of the book. We always like to joke that like editors are like the cheerleader in-house. So you are working hand in hand with the author to kind of, you know, create the quote unquote finished product. But that product is built by the hands of so many people and how it gets out into the world is so many people. And I kind of actually really love that like post editing stage. Cause then I get to be like, hi, hello. I can't wait for you to read this. Now please come talk to me and just like have a book club in the literal or metaphorical hallways of the offices where we work. And then when a book comes out uh, into the world and the on sale date, I can then be like, hello world. Hi, let's talk about this book and let's cheerlead it. And campaign for it and just generally love it with all our little hearts. But yeah, that's, a, it's a lot of emails, um, <laughs> a lot of reading, but it's really fun. I am exhausted just listening <laughs> to you say all of that. Like I, yeah. I mean, and I feel like obviously I know all of the amazing, wonderful things you're doing behind the scenes, but it still is just like so overwhelming. Um, but what you said, I think earlier in our conversation was that you're kind of like the midwife. Um, and I love that. I feel like that's like the perfect description. Like, you know, you're healthing everything in the leading up to it and then through the birthing process and, you know, also in the follow-up. And it's just, it's so much. You guys are amazing. It's truly though, none of it would happen if there weren't, you know, people writing amazing stories and authors who are wonderful. And it's always kind of that spark. And I think that's why it is such like a passion and love based industry and field because it's not just, oh, you you have to love it for like the long hours and the reading and whatnot, but also so much of our trade. In oh. oh, no. <laughs> okay. Hold on, folks, because we just we just lost Gabby. We haven't had that happen before. Um, so let's pause and we'll be right back. And we're back. The joys of technology. Thank you for <laughs> your patience, folks. All right. So let's get back into that. Gabby, if you want to pick up with what you were saying. Yes. So before my internet very kindly cut out from under me, <laughs> um, just talking about how this really is passion-based and love-based, not just because, you know, it, it. it is a lot of reading. It's a lot of long hours. My eye doctor is definitely like, you should read less on a computer. And like, that's not possible. But 
in the way that it's because we find stories that we want to champion and we want to tell and want to share with the world. So all of that starts with like the love of a book, which I think every single person listening to this has had in some way, shape or form, where if it's as a child or as an adult, as a young reader, like you just read something and then you want to talk about it. And so a lot of my job is actually getting to chase that feeling and be like, I read something great and I want to talk about it. So thank mm-hmm. you both also for writing books, because if, if you didn't write them, I would have nothing to talk about. Truly, <laughs> I would be very boring at dinner parties. <laughs> uh, well, I think we both agree that we would not be able to write our books without the help of everyone on our team. So Truly. thank you guys. All right. Is it time to dive in to my favorite topic of conversation? <laughs> and how incredibly hard it was to write this book and I think second books Mm -hmm. in general um I know Courtney you're getting very close to that point as well um yeah I okay before I get into all of my long list of how awful and terrible it was um (laughs) I have a checklist ready to refute everything. Well, do you want to kind of give us the editor's perspective of like, I mean, because obviously you know Mm -hmm. what we, some of what we go through with the second book. So sort of like, what's kind of like the outside take on it? Yes. So I very selfishly love second books. I know Fallon, you hate them. And I, I do understand it is a very different experience for a writer. And second books also look different in every different circumstance. I think in yours, you know, if you're comfortable with me sharing, like we already had book two under contract. So we knew it was happening. Not every writer, you know, they write their first book. They don't know necessarily what book two is going to be yet. It could be something wildly different. It could be in a series, which also is, you know, book two in a series is very different than like a fresh start with a book two. Some people never write the same type of book twice. So it's this really great period for like exploration and you can play around. And from my perspective, this is why I selfishly love book twos, especially if you kind of know already that it's coming down the pipeline is the joy of a, at least for an editor of a a second and a third, a fourth, however many projects with an author is that so much of our process and our job in a way. Yes, it is working on the text, on the manuscript, on telling the story, but it's also the relationship building. Um, You have a virtual stranger that you as a writer, I think we had what, like a 45 minute phone call for book one before we like signed up together, before the whole journey began. And it was like, oh, you just have this limited window to like trust someone with your baby essentially. And now with book two, it's like, oh, we know each other, like we have that relationship and you have that rapport. And because it is such a collaborative partnership of an experience, I really love kind of, you know, second, third, fourth, et cetera, books, because it's like, I know how you work. So I can also, there's not that there's ever tiptoeing, but there's a little like, oh, I want to make sure following an author's preference, if they like outlining, if they want to send every chapter and talk through it. Or if they're like, don't talk to me for three months and I will come back to you with a new draft. Like everyone works differently. So in our experience, at least by the time book two came around, I was like, okay, I know Fallon. I know what her preferences are. I know how 
to collaborate on, on an idea. So I think there were definitely moments with this one where, especially it's, I feel really, really privileged on early books to kind of be in that ground floor because another thing also, sorry, definitely like going out of order here, but a lot of book ones, at least in my experience where I work and kind of just the scope of projects, I often work with debut novelists. And so that means a lot of the times that I'm seeing their projects are coming fully formed in some way. More often than not, I'm reading a full manuscript submitted by an agent. And even if that project may change, go through very few edits, major edits, there's a scope to it. With book twos, it's the ground floor. It's very much like, as I mentioned, like an email with like, hey, I have this idea. This is what I think I want to write. What do you think? And I don't always get to have that, not level of input, because obviously I'll be like, yeah, whatever you want to write, or maybe let's shift this idea, or I think this is the really strong kernel, let's chase that. That doesn't always happen on first book. So with book two, it is a little bit more of that initial collaboration. But I also find it really fun, because as that's going, I'm like, okay, I can hear in your voice, and I can tell now, like, this is the part you're excited about. And this is the story you want to be chasing. And this is the part of the plot or the relationship or this character. You seem to keep talking about them a lot. Like, how do we make sure that they, you know, have a big role in the story or something like that? And it's a little bit more of a learning curve with that on first novels, whereas later ones, it's that really fun time. And then I also can be like, we're not strangers. So if I say, let's have an editorial call. And then I asked for your opinion on reality TV shows. You don't think I'm a weirdo. You're like, this is normal. I mean, you know, I'm always willing to give my opinion on reality TV shows anytime. Um, yeah, like, it's so interesting to hear you say all of that, because I definitely feel that on the writer's side, too, is there were definitely, you know, for me, those moments as I was writing where I... I really felt like I can't, I can't do this. Like I am a one hit wonder. Like <laughs> I just, I don't have it in me. Um, you know, whatever that sort of magic was that happened with Lise, I just don't have it. And I think, um, you know, part of the struggle for me with the second book is that Lise came to me so easily. I mean, I drafted that book in like six weeks. I, you know, the revisions that I did to it before to get it sort of like ready to go out on submission were pretty minimal. And so it just felt like I, I got this. <laughs> like I'm the master of the genre. And then I sat down to write book two and I was like, Oh, Oh no, I don't, I have nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing left. Um, <laughs> and so it was really, I mean, obviously there's like the struggle with second books in that there's now this expectation. Obviously this is the first time I've ever written a book under contract. So, you know, there is that sense of like, I'm not just writing for me anymore. Like I, this is like a business now and I got a check and if I can't deliver, <laughs> I'm in big trouble and I'm going to have to figure that out. Um so, you know, there's like sort of that like external pressure that you aren't necessarily feeling with a book one, because um, for most of us, we don't sell our book one until it's already completed and finished and we love it. Um, so I think that was sort of like 
the beginning of the struggle for me. And then I just really, really felt like it took a long time for me to get it. And I definitely did have that moment like later on, probably in like our second or third round of developmental edits, because I feel like we did a billion rounds of those and they needed them. Um, but there was sort of that moment when it, it clicked for me a little bit, but it just took a really long time to get there. Um, so thank you for not letting me delete my whole book. <laughs> and start over. Joking about that. And I was like, I don't know if she's joking or not. I'm so nervous. Let's not delete this. It's so good. Even, and that is also something I, I am not a writer in any way, shape or form. I I don't have that kind of like creative bone in my body. So when I talk with my authors or, or writers in general, it's always so interesting to me because I'm like, no, you've created something magical. And even if this isn't, if you don't love it, it's like, I love it. Or I see the spark there or or the kernel of an idea and like, let's roll with it. But also, oh God, I could never do this. Like, how are you still standing? Um, like I get stressed out sending like my little editorial notes to you. And mine's just like, new word here? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> and so having that feeling and knowing like the pressure of just completing a body of work in and of itself, it's like a miraculous act. And I, I also, Fallon, knowing you very well, and I know you guys have talked about this on the podcast before, of like you don't like an outline. I hate an outline. <laughs> you just want to go off and write and definitely – seeing like, okay, like, but how do you just like go off and write or do something? And I don't know if this was the click moment you're referring to, but I remember one of our conversations, I'm not going to spoil anything about the book, but something wasn't clicking with the friends. Mm -hmm. And then we realized, I was like, why don't you just go off and write? I think it's okay if I share like like the Slack channel yeah, and, and have like that voice. And I think you just went off and did that. And I remember you coming back to me being like, it all, that part of the book all clicked together for me. And it just like, is indicative of you. Cause you're like, I just have to like chase this and yeah. see where it goes. And then we can play around with it from there. But some other people I work with are like deep, deep outliners where they're like, I know from page one, where it's going to go. And I have to work through all of that before I can put pen to paper. And so like, it's such a deeply unique process. And then like, I'm sitting over here at my desk being like, thumbs up. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what do you want, especially in that developmental stage where it is like an early idea, it's more that question of what do you need to talk through? What are the ideas? Is it really, I just need to go off and write and then I'll come back to you. Or is it, what should this character's profession be or what should the relationship between not even, you know, the romantic arc in the story, but like what should Lana's relationship with her boss be like? And a lot of that comes out in a variety of ways. And especially in this, in a book two, where again, you're working with an editor from day one, there are just so many endless possibilities of how a book can be formed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, for me at the beginning stages of writing book two, I think I was very, very much still in my like <clears throat> baby author mentality of like, 
I don't want anyone to hate me. I'm going to do exactly what is asked of me and I'm going to follow all the rules and do all the things. Um, And because I signed my book deal in the pandemic stages of publishing, I had to turn in an outline and get it approved, destroyed my brain. (laughs) Mm. And I know that, you know, you and I, Gabby, had many conversations where you're like, you don't have to do exactly what's on the outline. Like, it's fine. You can deviate from that. It's not the end of the world. And I was like, no, this is the outline. And it was approved and I must (laughs) stick to it. And obviously, in the end, I did not end up sticking to it, which is good. Um, But yeah, I know I've talked about my writing processes is very chaotic. Um, And so now I think now that we're on book three and and talking about even book four, I know that I can go to you and just be like, look, it's a hot mess right now. I just got to push through and I will get there and it'll be fine. And, (laughs) you know, I trust that you will give me the space to be chaotic and know that it will it will turn out in the end. Yes, I so much of the process is discovery. And sometimes that comes from like messy first drafts or working through an idea or, you know, certain details of future projects, which I will not yet reveal of being like, okay, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? Like how, for a variety of reasons, what parameters do we need to be conscientious of? Because again, it is once you are writing with publication in mind, there are definitely sometimes external factors of it's like, what time of year is this book set? Or is this really similar to something I've already written? Or how am I pushing myself as a writer or exploring a new direction, but still staying true to kind of my type of storytelling and and my, I always hesitate to say brand because I think writers should not be put in a box and they can do a lot of different projects, but like my identity as a writer and where is the through line where like your readers are going to be like, okay, this is like, you know, a different setting or a different plot, but I still see the spark of like what makes like a Fallon Ballard book. Um, so it's with each one, it's just like a new opportunity, I think, to yeah. explore that. And definitely, you know, when we were talking about just my type, so much of Lisa on Love is like, it's New York City, it's Park Slope, like the setting is such an environment. But I remember for this, you're like, I think I want to do LA. And I was like, yes, please. This is your turf. You're like, as <laughs> like a Los Angeles person, you can get the spirit of that in a way, which for me to work on being a New Yorker, I was like, this is so much fun for me because I loved Leesk. So I'm like, I know the block you're referring to in Brooklyn, but for California, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I haven't been to LA. Like, I feel like I can go there and I can get a sense of this like new place and new culture. Even though I was like, oh, we work together. I know you. I still felt I was learning a lot. Yeah. I love that. Um, I I was just going to say like, yeah, I don't know that I'll ever write a book set in a small town. Then I was like, no, shut up, you dummy. <laughs> You've got things coming. Um, <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who's to say? <laughs> All right. I love it. <laughs> so Courtney, what have been some of your book two syndrome struggles? I, well, I just, I as you could see from my like bobblehead going on, I love just lists. That was such a comfort to listen to like everything that you just said. 
Um, and it's been, you know, a very similar road with my editor and I, and I love how you talked about building trust and confidence. And I feel like that is so much of the experience of book two overall, like between your editor and your team, you know, there's such that fear as an author, um, of gosh, they picked up my first book. That's, you know, um, what they liked. And so also with your agent, you know, it's such this fear of like, I hope I can deliver again. I hope that um, I can produce something with the same feel and um, I don't want to let anybody down. And then like, you know, you're also dealing with getting reviews for the first time on your first book. So all of that kind of gets in your head. You're like, gosh, I had a bad Goodreads review. Uh, are they not going to like me anymore? You know, I mean, I'm laughing now, but like <laughs> Goodreads. But um, my point is, um, I got kind of caught up for a minute, was it really is this process of growth. And I, I like, it was so validating for my agent and editor to be like, it's tough. Like book two is tough because it's a lot of internal work that you do. And I think that's most of it. And somehow that really, really impacts your writing, you know, all of the things going on in your head. And so it's just so amazing to have an incredible editor and agent and team um, kind of hold your hand through that. I literally, I feel like I was constantly in my emails, like, help, (laughs) help me emotionally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and every time they did, like they really pulled, they were incredible and so reassuring. And you guys, it sounds like you had a very similar experience with just that sort of connection. And, uh, it's amazing to experience that. And it just makes me value my team. Like I feel valued as a human as well. And so I think that's just, um, what's the word? irreplaceable. That's an irreplaceable feeling. And and it makes you excited to create art. And then looking forward, it makes you excited like, okay, um, I can do this again. You know, <laughs> I can do this a better way next time for my emotional or my, my, my mental health. Um, and my team has got my back. And that's such a good, that's such a great feeling. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gabby was definitely the first and not the only one to be like, never look at Goodreads. (laughs) (laughs) Never look. (laughs) I know. It's so tough. So tough. I didn't stay. (laughs) (laughs) We sometimes we got to We got to touch the flame, right? That's all I'll (laughs) say on the topic of Goodreads. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not Goodreads. Just the online review industrial complex if we want to call yeah. it that yes I, yeah I understand the urge but yeah. I'm here to read them for you that's oh yeah. you don't have to put yourself through it we but have to protect too, yeah. yeah right we have to <laughs> to keep creating I think I think um you know there's the bad reviews that obviously we've all had our experiences there but also too is like as you're writing book two and you're starting to see even some of the good stuff where people are like, I can't wait for your next book or like, I love this so much. Like right. I'm going to read everything you write. And I'm like, Oh, ugh, great. I hope you don't hate this one. And so there's almost like just as much pressure 
from those good reviews and people showing enthusiasm, which obviously don't stop doing that because we need that to survive. But there is a little bit of that pressure of like, oh, I I don't want to let anybody down, you know, now that you have these people that are saying such nice things about you. It's a lot. Yeah. And like, oh my gosh, we love our readers so much, right? Like yes. you're all so amazing. And I think it's just like the process of growth that you have to go through in that second book as an author, like mm-hmm. actually learning like, okay, my book is now out there <laughs> and learning how to deal with, with um, the vulnerability of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a lot when you, when you are also learning how to deal with deadlines and deal with it's it's just a lot in general. And so I think having an amazing team, like, yeah. wow. I, like I can't even put into words how incredible it is. It's amazing. Yeah. But that just like <laughs> makes me so happy. Again, because I think it is a unique perch that we kind of have, especially being on the mm-hmm. team side over here of, you know, your publishing team are like your day one fans and both as colleagues and coworkers, and you're all partnering together to bring this book out into the world, but also the number of people just like in-house when they know a favorite author of theirs has a new book. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to read it. Not just like, I can't wait to work on it, but also I can't wait to read it because we too are, are readers and it's why we do what we do. And so I think it's just that notion of all about community, even even the aforementioned Goodreads comments that will keep you up at night. It is about community building and knowing like you have people in your corner and whether that's readers or fans or your publishing team or your editor and writing is such a solitary practice, Mm -hmm. but it is meant to be enjoyed by a lot of people and shared with a lot of people. And so that transition is a really, really tricky place to live in and kind of that transitory moment, I think is where, at least in my experience, I see a lot of writers and even people, you know, on the creative side, editors, publicists, marketers, designers feel, oh, okay. Like it's going from just like our shared little baby to more and more people. The the net is getting wider and wider, which is always, it's a very exciting time, but it is, there's definitely, there's that like vulnerability to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. And we've talked a lot on the podcast about, you know, sort of feeling like alone as the writer, you're in this little like bubble, just, you know, a gremlin sitting at your computer all hours of the night. (laughs) And then (laughs) when, you know, that's why finding other writers to talk to about the process is so important. And then, you know, having a team that you can trust. Um, And I know I have chatted with authors who have had like not great experiences with people on their team. So to have a team that I feel like really supports me and gets me where I can send you those emails and just be like, (laughs) I'm five seconds away from deleting this entire manuscript. (laughs) Please help me. (laughs) And you could be like, stop doing that. Like, you know, like deep breaths. Like, (laughs) yeah. Yes. It's essential. Um, I feel like we can swing into our next topic, which I could honestly talk about this for an hour, but (laughs) it goes along very nicely with seconds, second chance romance, second book syndrome. Um, so (laughs) this was the unhinged email I sent to Gabby last week is like, okay, so I am 
obsessed with Aaron Tveit returning to Moulin Rouge, which I was already obsessed with. Uh, so I saw Moulin Rouge on opening weekend in 2019 because I was in New York for the last RWA to ever be. Oh <laughs> None gosh. of us knew that at the time. Um, it was my first and the last. And <laughs> <laughs> because I live in LA, that was also the last Broadway show I saw before the shutdown. So wow. it's always been like a, a very special piece of my heart. And then to learn that Aaron was coming back to the show, I freaking lost it. And it just so happens to coincide with my upcoming trip to New York. <laughs> and the way those stars aligned, <laughs> it, it was meant to be um so i already have my tickets to see it when i am there i cannot wait but it totally spurred this like random book idea i have always wanted to write a theater romance and i feel like they're hard to write because they are very niche um you know like not everybody gets the theater world if you aren't a theater person but i know gabby you are a theater person (laughs) it's like one of us I think one of the reasons we connected, even in our first phone call, I think we yeah. talked about it on our first phone call. It when we were talking definitely about absolutely comes up because again, yeah. as I mentioned, if I don't have books to shout from the rooftops about, like I'm a very boring dinner party companion. Um, <laughs> so then throw me into musical theater territory and yes. off we go. No, I am very excited about this news. It's actually funny you mentioned that that was the last show you saw before the shutdown because I also saw it pre-pandemic, but most of my friends saw it after the, or, or mid-pandemic, kind of when Broadway was returning. Um, but I actually saw a show the night before New York City shut down. Oh, wow. So I, it was Little Shop of Horrors. Oh. And then new, we were kind of like, should we go? Like, I don't know. Like, this feels questionable. But, but we decided to go. And then, like, noon the next day, got, like, the iPhone alert of like Broadway shutting down, like all these, like, so the idea of like the last show you see is like, it's very imprinted in my mind personally. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I know you have some thoughts about Aaron coming back <laughs> and I, I think you used the phrase conspiracy theories and I need oh. to know <laughs> some of your, cons- some, all one, as many as you're willing to share knowing he will never listen to this podcast, obviously. I knew that that email was going to come back to haunt me. (laughs) I knew it. It's always the emails. Paper trails. Okay. (laughs) It's not a conspiracy. I just, and have thought long and hard about this, and I have talked to many other friends who have thought long and hard about this. I think it's brilliant. He is phenomenal in this role. He is great in the show. I think the show is so, so, so much fun. I was a true, like, Moulin Rouge, the movie. Like, that was formative in my upbringing. Um, So I have pluses and minuses of, like, what the musical did. I think the musical is a separate entity than what the movie is. That's a conversation for another day. Aaron coming back, I think... I think the timeline of his return to the show and the timeline of the announcement of casting and the filming of the Wicked movie is interesting to me. 
Oh, that's all. It's not a conspiracy theory. I just, as someone who has also in depth analyzed the rollout of the wicked casting and the withholding up to a certain point of like, who's Fierro? Who can play to both Cynthia Revo and Ariana Grande? Like, who's brand name enough to, you know, be the male lead of a two part film adaptation of a pivotal musical. And it would, I, I have no idea if he was in conversations or if he wasn't in conversations or if he was working on other projects. Um, the, sh- I don't know if it's going to be called Chicago, the Schmigadoon season two t- filming, yes. I believe happened this summer. So like a lot of the filming television work put, potential casting conversations who's to say I think a lot of it lines up interestingly and that's all I this makes me sound much more I don't know like no red string murder conspiracies um (laughs) but I don't know it just made me sit up and think (laughs) okay I would not have connected those in my brain so I'm so glad that you said that because I was like Wait a minute. Wicked. Oh, oh, okay. Um, which I am not mad about Jonathan Bailey as oh, I love hero it. at all. I like, think it's I perfect. feel like, yeah, he's <laughs> absolute perfection. Um, I already have thoughts about the Wicked movie that I am just like, <laughs> first of all, this does not need to be two parts. You can sit through a Broadway show, like, you can sit through the movie. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't get it. <laughs> well, like, original song nomination, so they need to write a new song. Right. And are we pulling from the book, which I also like grew up like mm. the book was very important to me. I was guys, I was that kind of nerd. Like this none of this is surprising. <laughs> You're in safe space. Thank you. <laughs> one but, of us, one of us. One of us. Like I don't know, it could be a movie if we trim some of the I love Wicked. I would die for Wicked. I saw it again recently for the first time in like a very, very long time. It was like, some of this is a little boring. And that's okay. It's part of the story. I just, if we are splitting it into two movies, it's going to be act one and act two. It has to be, how much are we getting into like the political landscape of Oz and animal rights and they have not cast a Dr. Dillamon. So if we're scrapping that or changing that, it could have been one movie because that's like a lot of the extra time that takes up space on the stage production. Not that it's not a great plotline. It is, but it's like when you're adapting, you have to make certain choices. And from all we know, that's not something they're following through on. Yeah. So I don't know. I um I don't want to say I like wrote it off because obviously I will go see it and I'm sure it will be fabulous. I just from the beginning of the initial casting I was like Cynthia Erivo and Ariana Grande are not peers. Like they're not <laughs> the same age. Like they're at all. To be in college. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. was like Cynthia Erivo is fantastic. She's like my age maybe a little bit younger than me and i was like this is... and we're in a movie we're not you can get away with that on stage because 
nobody can see your face, you know, that close, so it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. But I'm like, and not that she looks old, obviously she looks amazing. But um, I just was like, I don't see how you make these two both be students together. Like it just doesn't make any sense in my brain. And so since ever since yeah. then, I've been I mean, like, even eh. Ariana Grande, like she's my age. And it's like, we're deeply out of college. If we've learned anything from the uh, Dear Evan Hansen <sighs> film. I don't know. I'm just really fascinated. I love a movie musical adaptation. I'm here for all of them. And in reverse, you know, going back to Moulin Rouge, like taking a, a, a literal movie musical and turning it into a musical, I think the conversations between mediums are endlessly fascinating to me. And the different opportunities, like, let's just do more movie musicals. The Mamma Mia cinematic universe is oh. very, very near and dear to my heart. And if we get more theater people on, you know, wide screens, like this is where I think like the Jonathan Bailey casting is so great because everyone's like Bridgerton, Bridgerton, Bridgerton. But he has like a very accomplished track record as a stage performer. Yeah. And so to be like, oh, like he can also flex those muscles and we can take people and like not recast them, but like cast them in different lighting to be like never – is really hitting all of my major like pop culture moments like (laughs) never forget when the whole world came for Anne Hathaway because she was like I am a tried and true musical theater nerd and I'm gonna sing in Les Mis and really commit to it and I never doubted her poor thing day one like and now everyone's like we don't deserve Anne Hathaway and we don't yeah she is having (laughs) the comeback season of her life mm-hmm. the past few years and i am here for it obsessed with you anne hathaway also <laughs> love all of the anne hathaway jokes in and juliet <laughs> which i'm also obsessed with however i was like so i saw anne juliet in london uh which was amazing and uh i was like going to go see it in new york on this trip with and my husband was like absolutely not <laughs> like <laughs> i am not seeing that <laughs> He's like, I will go with you to pretty much anything. That's not one of them. That? It's like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> to be fair to him, he is a jazz musician, so every song mm-hmm. on the uh, on the recording of the Aunt Juliet, which I listened to religiously since it came out, he's like, uh, this is like the music of my nightmares. So. <laughs> <laughs> He's like in sync and Backstreet Boys and Katy Perry all in one show. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Well, I mean, I really could talk about Aaron forever, but I think we will spare. He's everybody. wonderful. Just yeah. also, guys, he's been on a lot of TV shows. Like his arc on Gossip Girl, excellent. Oh, like people I, just did you not know, I know. about this? I, I've never watched. I can't. I've never Alan. gotten into Gossip Girl. I know. I know. I know. Okay, I'll go back. But the Shemiga original, Dune. not the reboot. But yeah, yeah Shemiga Dune, which I know Ugh, so we good. can talk about offline. It's yes. very special. Yeah. So if you know, in five years, you see me writing a theater book, you will know it was inspired by this moment. <laughs> Please do it. please please do it i love it 
Gabby, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for, I'm like going to go back and just listen to this every time I need to feel good about myself. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You're the best. Um, Do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter? Should they want to follow all of your amazing authors and their journey and your journey? Oh, no. My social media is a vessel for (laughs) tweeting about books I work on. Um, Yes, I can be found at Gabby Mangeli, G-A-B-Y-M-O-N-G-E-L-L-I. I I am, yes, a 1B Gabby. Um, You can follow me there on Twitter. But thank you guys for having me, truly. I am just like such fans of both of yours like and Courtney also hearing about like your experience and like I know you're in the trenches right now but it's going to be so amazing and just like as a fan of your first book I just eagerly await (laughs) the next and like I'm so glad you guys are doing this and the podcast is great and I don't know this is just like a very special conversation yay you're the best. <laughs> now we're blushing. Jeez. I know. <laughs> this is why so I wear turtlenecks because I just like get so red <laughs> all the time. <laughs> okay, that's uh, actually a good tip that I might take into consideration for uh, release week. Lots of turtlenecks. <laughs> just like a scarf wrapped around. Yeah. Yes. Up to our eyeballs. It's been so awesome. lovely, Gabby. Truly. Thank you for all you do. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And as you are now listening to this, Just My Type is available everywhere. Go buy it. Uh, You can come see me and Courtney this weekend at Meet Cute Bookshop um, on Saturday, February 11th. So you can check us out there. And then I will also be with Alyssa Sussman at The Ribbed Bodice on Sunday the 12th. Um, Ditch the Super Bowl and come... (laughs) Spend your time in a romance bookstore <laughs> instead. Sounds like a good absolutely. To yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, oh, that's when the Super Bowl. Is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a thing. Did not know when I scheduled it, but you know, it works out okay. <laughs> Love that. It's all good. Oh all God. right, friends. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to Happy to Meet Cute. If you enjoyed our podcast, we would love it so much if you would give us a follow on social media. We are at Happy to Meet Cute on Instagram. And also, if you could please leave a review and subscribe, that would be amazing. If you would like to follow your host, you can find Courtney at court underscore K, K-A-E, on all social media platforms. And you can find me, Fallon Ballard, at Fallon Ballard, everywhere you imbibe your social media. If you would like to buy any of the books mentioned in this episode, you can find links in the show notes. And a special shout out to Zachary Kibbe and Matt Ballard for our amazing theme song. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you next time.